Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to read verse 7. That says this, this is what the word of God says. Remember those that led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Let's pray one more time before we're seated. Father, I pray today that you would give us grace, grace, the grace of imitation, the biblical grace of imitating those who have gone before us and have left in their wake an example for us to follow. In the words of the Apostle Paul, may we imitate them as they imitate Christ. And Father, I pray today that you would exalt your servant that we're going to be looking at today um, throughout the chronicles of church history as we keep every year considering a different a person, a different prominent figure of the Reformation, I pray today that you would help us to learn and to glean from the example of one John Calvin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is Reformation Sunday for us. If you are a visitor today, want to rest to give you um, just a, a bit of a description of what we do at our church. We customarily go through books of the Bible and we expound and we exposit and we exegete the Word of God verse by verse, and that is really our mainstay. Today, however, I want to celebrate the Reformation with you. Happy Reformation Day, by the way. Uh, I don't celebrate Halloween. I celebrate the Reformation Day. Uh, I take advantage of October 31st to remember those that went before us so that we can consider, as the text says, the result of their faith or the result of their conduct and so that we would imitate their faith. Well, last year, I began a series where we are considering pillars of the Reformation, and we began with the Reformation proper, and we looked at the life and the theology and the courage of Martin Luther. Um, This year... I want to continue in that tradition by looking at the example of John Calvin and what I want to do with Calvin as every year I'm going to focus not only on the life and the legacy of the man, of the person, but I also want to tie it in somehow to the theology of the person or emphasize something about that person and tie it in to scripture. And so today, what I want to look at is John Calvin on the centrality of Christ. John Calvin on the centrality of Christ. Now, I want to begin by talking about Calvin from a point of humility because so many people say so many presumptuous things about John Calvin. People who have never studied or read uh, Calvin for, him, or for themselves, have never read him directly, have never uh, worked through a biography. So many people say so many presumptuous things about John Calvin and about, of course, Calvinism. And so you hear people say, well, oh, Calvin taught that doctrine of predestination, or Calvin used to kill heretics, or Calvin was a legalist or a Puritan, and they do that in a, and usually in a very demeaning tone. I don't like to be called a Calvinist because I don't want to follow a man, John Calvin. And I think John Calvin would say amen to that. <laughs> don't follow a man and don't call yourself after, and don't, don't be identified with a man necessarily. 
and John Calvin. Calvin did not like the word Calvinism. He actually protested against the word or the use of the term Calvinism, did not want anything to bear his name. And as I have studied Calvin now for many years and considered his life, I am consistently impressed by the humility of this man. And this is why. Because when we're looking at John Calvin, we are looking at a person in the history of the Christian church that has determined theology for the Christian church for 500 years, more than any other theologian of the Christian church before or thereafter. Calvin, to put it succinctly, Calvin is a seminal theologian. He is a theologian of the first rank, of the first Order. James Montgomery Boyce said this about John Calvin, his prominence, his example. He says this, Calvin had no other weapon except the Bible. Calvin preached from the Bible every day. And under the power of that preaching, the city, that is of Geneva, began to be transformed as the people of Geneva acquired the knowledge of the Word of God and were changed by it, the city became, as John Knox would call it later, the New Jerusalem from which the gospel was spread to all of Europe, all of England, onto the New World. Those words open up the first chapter of Stephen Lawson's little powerful dynamite stick of a book, the genius of John Calvin's expository, or the expository genius of John Calvin. And this is what Lawson had to say about Calvin himself. He said, towering over the centuries of the church of church history, there stands one figure of such monumental importance that he still commands attention and he arouses intrigue. Even 500 years after his appearance on the world stage, called one of the truly great men of all time, he was a driving force so significant, and his influence shaped the church and, the, and Western culture beyond any other theologian or pastor. His masterful exposition of Scripture laid down the doctrinal distinctives of the Protestant Reformation, making him arguably the leading architect of the Protestant cause. I agree with all of that, and I think all of these men, what they're trying to emphasize, again, all these men like Montgomery Boyce and Steve Lawson, all these other men who are great in their own right, what they're trying to say is that theologian was, uh, that Calvin was a theologian of the very first order, a primary thinker. Calvin was a primary thinker. What that means is Calvin did not have Calvin. Jonathan Edwards, another primary thinker, Jonathan Edwards did not have a Jonathan Edwards to read. He was Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> and we have all benefited from the writings of Edwards. We've all benefited from the writings of John Calvin as he laid the foundation for literally future theologians for 500 more years. And here we are today. And I tell you what, I picked up a stack of commentaries by John Calvin like this because I needed it for what I was studying. And I was just working my way through some of these commentaries and just reading some of the things they said, you know, and I was thinking to myself, this commentary that I'm reading is 500 years old. 500 years old. And yet, it lands on me with such a fresh relevance, such a nomic, timeless relevance. This is why Calvin, when he wrote, wrote what he did in a timeless fashion. 
His works will always be relevant, even a thousand years from now, if the Lord tarries. The writings of Calvin, the exposition of Calvin, will never, ever lose its savor. Love him or hate him. Many people hate him, and many people love him. But love him or hate him, hate him. one of the things you, you can't say about John Calvin is that he was not a man of his word, or that he, he, that he did not live out what he preached. Oh, he did. Matter of fact, T.H.L. Parker, which if you're going to study a, comment or a, a biography on, on, on Calvin, T.H.L. Parker is probably the standard biographer on Calvin. But Calvin was known for his integrity, for living out what he taught and what he preached. Listen to what Parker had to say. He said, the last and truest thing to be said about Calvin is that within the limits of sinful mortality... The unity of his life is outstanding. His thoughts, his actions, his intentions point all to the same direction. As he thought, so he lived, and so he purposed. He was like an Old Testament prophet in that he proclaimed the word of God by, worth, by both words and by actions. In that sense, the course of his life takes on a certain sacramental reality. It bore visible witness to the gospel that he preached. Such prominence and the fact that people have lavished on Calvin such praise did not at all mean that Calvin saw that his expository and theological genius came from him. It did not. As a matter of fact, he would agree with, with Paul when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are adequate of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. He says, but our adequacy is from God. As a matter of fact, when Calvin came to comment on this portion of Scripture, he said in his commentary, he says, Now we see that Paul leaves man with nothing. <laughs> so he had a very high view of God. He had a very low view of his own depravity and, 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 and what he was apart from God. Calvin knew that he, in and of himself, was nothing. He knew that his competency was a gracious bestowal by the grace of God. And to see this, I think we need to consider briefly his life and his legacy. So first, even though this is not going to be a strict bio on the life and times of John Calvin, by the way, if you have not heard John Piper's biography of Calvin, you need to do that. Do yourself a favor. I've listened to it probably 10 times. It's so good. John Piper's biographies and the series that he's done, oh, he's got about 25 of them now, but the series is entitled Men of Whom the World is Not Worthy. Please do yourself a favor. Download those onto your phone. Get that on your iPad. Get that on your iPhone. Get that on your computer. Whatever you got to do and just work through those biographies so that you can really appreciate your own religious legacy. And the people that have come in your wake, the people that have come, or before you rather, people that have come throughout the development of church history so that you can have a greater appreciation for what God has done throughout the ages in his people, in his church. Now, Calvin was born July 10th, 1509, in Nyon, Picardy, France. He was a Frenchman. So anything that you read 
from Calvin realized that it has been translated from French to whatever language you're going to read it in. Probably English, right? I mean, you guys are probably not going to read it in Chinese. But if you read it in English, know that it has undergone several translations. They often translated Calvin's works into many other languages. So, for example, they translated into Latin. But he was a Frenchman. And he died May 27, 1564, at the ripe young age of 54 years old. Ironically, dying the same age as Jonathan Edwards, 54 years old. And boy, when you consider that he was only 54 years old, and when you consider the breadth and scope and depth of his accomplishments, it really is staggering what this man was able to do in a short lifetime. We would consider that a short lifetime. But Calvin accomplished in 54 years what people have not been able to accomplish in many lifetimes put together. It's just the, 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 the metal of this man and what he was made out of. Uh, the details of Calvin's life are pretty well known. He was born to Gerard Calvin, who was a very prop, prosperous and, uh, man. He was a prosperous cathedral notary, and he wanted John Calvin, from the very youngest ages, he wanted Calvin to either enter the priesthood or to go to law school. You know, back in those days, uh, parents who wanted their their, their children to do well, sent them off either to law school or to the priesthoods, particularly their sons. Calvin's mom, Jeanne Lefranc, she died very shortly after his birth, probably a couple years after Calvin was born. She died for reasons unknown, so Calvin growing up without his mother. Uh, however, from a very young age, it was evident to everybody that knew Calvin that this boy was prodigious, that he was a genius child. And eventually, people wanted to foster that genius. And so when Calvin's own family could not provide him the necessary educational advantages that he sought, he went to live with a well-to-do family in New Orleans, where he went to the University of New Orleans, where he went to study Latin under one of the greatest Latin teachers of all time, Mutherine Cordier. And there he learned from him the Latin language, which gave him access, eventually giving him access to all sorts of theological works that he would not otherwise have access to. Eventually, he went to the College de Montaigu, where he would go and study philosophy. This is interesting about Calvin. Talk about testimony. We just had a baptism. People shared their testimony. And, don't, and don't, you, don't you think about when you hear a testimony, oh, the things that God spared that person from, right? Well, when I think of Calvin's biography, I think, oh, what God spared Calvin from. Calvin was... Uh, fascinated with humanism, secular humanism. And he wanted to go and study philosophy at Montaigu and study under a very famous humanistic teacher. And I just think, had Calvin not gotten saved, Calvin could have gone down in the annals of history as one of the greatest humanist thinkers of our time. Thanks be to God that God redeemed this humanist from his humanism and made him a Christian. Praise the Lord. God redeems, God saves liberals <laughs> like Calvin. And Calvin eventually entered the University of Borges where he would pick up New Testament Koine Greek. 
He would learn the Greek language. Uh, Calvin became a master of the Greek language. Calvin became a master of the biblical languages. Do you know that oftentimes Calvin would go into the pulpit and he would open up uh, his books because he would preach from the Greek and the Hebrew, no notes. Greek and Hebrew preaching perfect theology, translating as he's preaching, no notes, and just expositing from the Word of God perfect theology for the people, for all of Geneva to learn from. Uh, this guy is made out of something. Don't try to, you know, that verse I started with, imitate their, imitate their, their faith. Yeah, don't try to imitate their, their study habits, okay? <laughs> Or necessarily, they're pre- I'm not coming up here with my Greek and Hebrew and doing and none, none of that. This guy was a genius in every sense of the word. But it was after his time at Borges where Calvin was converted. And listen to his conversion account. He says, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind into a teachable frame which was more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from what at from one at my early period of life in other words calvin saw himself as a very hardened young man to the things of god and god softened his heart it says he he goes on having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, yet I pursued them with less ardor. I love that word, ardor. Just passion, zeal. So what Calvin is saying is, when he was converted, God subdued his mind. He brought him into a teachable frame. And it just reminds me of Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, where it says, You became obedient to the pattern of sound doctrine, right? The Romans were subdued. We are subdued. Calvin was subdued. His, His mind and his frame, his whole, his whole entire Uh, faculty was brought under a teachable spirit so that God began to teach this man. And he said as soon as he had a taste of knowledge of of what true godliness was, he was inflamed. He had tasted that the Lord was good, and he pursued that goodness with an intense desire. And in that sense, him and Jonathan Edwards have a lot in common. When Jonathan Edwards was converted, he was resolved, as he said, to study the Scripture so steadily and so consistently until he can see himself growing. I mean, what an incredible resolve. What about the Reformation? If Luther is the lightning rod of the Reformation, and certainly he was, then Calvin was the electrical grid that harnessed its power most meticulously. Calvin was a lot younger than Luther. Luther, however, had immense respect for Calvin and his writings. And on essential issues, Luther and Calvin were lockstep, totally in total agreement as to what the Reformation was all about. 
It was about the nature of the will. It was about the nature of saving grace. It was about the nature of justification by faith alone. They were lockstep with one another on those issues. Now, the most important thing that Calvin contributed to the Institute, or excuse me, to the Reformation was the Institutes of the Christian Religion. That is like his systematic theology. And the Institutes began to give the Reformation uh, its vitality. In other words, it gave this new movement, the Reformation, it gave it a well-thought-out worldview. And so he, he took the truths of the Reformation and he gave all of it shape and form and contours and specificity. And he cataloged everything that every French reformer during his time wanted to know. Now that we are saying we are protesting against the Catholic Church, now what? What of Erasmus? What do we do with Thomas, Thomas Aquinas? What do we do with Augustine? What do we do with the scholastics? What do we do with all of these people now that we are saying Roman Catholicism is the whore of Babylon and has gone astray and no longer has the gospel? Now what? Many of the reformers identified the Pope as the Antichrist, remember. So now, here are reformed, young reformed pastors asking the question, where is our theological tradition? And Calvin provides, through his writings, the, Re the Reformation, uh, a soul of theological, uh, a, a theological worldview and thought. This is remarkable about what Calvin did on March of 1536 was the first time that the Institutes were published. Calvin was 27 years old when the Institutes were first published, which means Calvin was in his early 20s writing the Institutes prior to its total formulation and publication, which means you have a 20-something-year-old man writing theology that would, would become essentially the plumb line for the church for 500 years. <laughs> That's just absolutely remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable what God was doing in this man. And back in those days, back in the period, don't get condemned, brothers and sisters, but in the times of Calvin, that type of uh, young, early genius you start finding it uh, readily in the, t in the life of the Puritans. So you had Jonathan Edwards, eight years old, Greek and Hebrew. Fourteen years old, graduating from Yale with giving his valedictorian speech in Latin. No problem. <laughs> These were strange times, were they not? Something that Calvin set out to become the head of the Reformation, he did not. As a matter of fact, even though Calvin was growing in his prominence because of his writings, the, the heart of hearts for Calvin was to live in seclusion, to live in isolation, and to live a life of just quiet, tranquil study. It's just my kind of guy. He wanted a hermit life where he could just study his books and commence with his writings. But his friends, Martin Boozer, William Farrell, would not allow him to because they saw that, especially in Geneva, his attempt to leave Geneva and to go in quiet isolation and be by himself was completely out of step with the genius of this great man. 
They thought, no way are you going to go and live in this quiet little retirement. You're going to go live this hermit life while Geneva needs you. We need you, Calvin. And so his friends actually persuaded him to turn away from his vision of a quiet little secluded life where he would study his commentaries and delve into the meticulous particularities of Hebrew and Greek and, and all of that. As a matter of fact, if you read Calvin's exposition of the Psalms, he talks about this very thing. Listen to what he says. Here talking about William Farrell, which he, he ran into William Farrell by accident, and Farrell got, got a hold of him and said, you are not going to go and retire and go live this quiet little life of study, okay? Uh, or we'll see what happens. <laughs> Pharaoh says, or Calvin says about Pharaoh, says, Pharaoh burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel. Immediately, he strained every nerve to detain me. So this guy grabs a hold of Calvin and in essence saying, you are going to, with me to Geneva. You are not going to live in isolation. And after having learned that it was my heart that was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wish to keep myself free of other pursuits and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, that is to say, he gained nothing by begging uh, a Calvin to stay. He said, Pharaoh proceeded to utter imprecation to God that God would curse my retirement and that the tr tranquility of my studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. Listen, to Calvin took this serious. This was some sort of meeting. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I desisted from my journey which I had undertaken. But sensible of my natural bashfulness and timidity, I would not bring myself under obligation to discharge any particular office. So what is Calvin saying? I didn't want to appoint myself the head of anything. He said, by nature, Calvin would say about himself that he was shy, that he was bashful and timid. Praise God that he uses shy and bashful people, right? Are you shy? Are you bashful? Some of you are painfully shy, right? <laughs> you don't even know what to say around some people that are so shy, right? Well, Calvin saw himself as overcome by his own timidity and therefore he wouldn't even want to utter you know or, or suggest I think I should serve in this capacity this is the greatest theologian of the reformation saying I don't want to presume what it is that God is calling me to when everybody is telling him we want you in Geneva to head up the city to inform the uh the council to to inform the um the bishops that make decisions and and, and, and part of all the civil uh, things that go on in the city as he was indeed a part of. But uh, in other words, God had virtually had to thrust him into his position. Let's talk about the institutes a little bit more. What did Calvin say about the institutes? What were they? Listen to what, how he defines the institutes because I think we learn a lot from Calvin and theology and why you do it. Listen to this. This is his own description of the institutes of the Christian religion. He says that in these institutes, he says, we can find the basic teaching of the Christian religion comprising almost the whole sum of godliness and whatever is necessary to know on the doctrine of salvation, a newly published work 
very well worth reading by all who are studious of godliness. A preface to the most Christian king of France, offering to him this book as a confession of faith by the author Jean Calvin. And I want to zero in on the word godliness. Because for Calvin, theology was for the purpose of godliness. It wasn't for the purpose of being puffed up with pride. It wasn't for the, isn't it ironic though, that so many Calvinists get accused of being prideful, being puffed up, being uh, overly critical, having a critical spirit. And to some that might be true if we don't take heed to Calvin's emphasis, which was pursue theological knowledge, yes, for the purpose of godliness. For Calvin, above everything, he was concerned with the knowledge of God and with the knowledge of himself in order to be godly. As a matter of fact, all theology, according to Calvin, can be summed up in this phrase, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. That is the way that he saw it. That is the way that he wanted to do theology. Perhaps that is the reason why God, in his mysterious sovereignty, chose this man to make him the plumb line of systematic theologies that have followed in the wake of Calvin for hundreds of years. I, I often give you the breakdown of, of how it is that systematic theology works. You know, right now, we're doing systematic theology in Sunday school, and I'm basically following Wayne Grudem, and I'm following Burkhoff, because they, they're very similar in the way they outline systematic theology. It's very good. But all of that, my dear friends, goes back to, Calv to Calvin's institutes and in the way that he broke up and thought of theology. It's just amazing. What about his commentaries? His commentaries span many dozens of volumes on almost the entire Bible. And when you look at Calvin's commentaries, these are not just simple commentaries. There is Latin. There is Hebrew. There is Greek. Calvin is interacting with the text at a very, very deep and profound level. Um, uh, regarding Calvin's labors, uh, Jack Arnold from Third Millennium Magazine pointed out this about how busy Calvin was. He said, Calvin was an incessant worker who was always doing something for his master, Jesus Christ. He wrote the Institutes and commentaries on almost every book of the Bible. He wrote other works and carried on prolific correspondence. Remember, in the Reformation, in Geneva, everyone was looking to Calvin, young pastors, constantly beseeching Calvin, going to Calvin, seeking his wisdom, seeking his counsel. And he says, they had correspondence with some of the most prominent reformers in, in, in Europe and England. Calvin was the chief administrator for the Church of Geneva. He carried out his pastoral responsibilities with great care and concern. He rarely refused anybody counsel if it was a serious need. Calvin also preached or taught twice a day and three times on Sunday, and that is for the entirety of his ministry. Here's Calvin preaching every day, twice a day, and three times on Sunday. <laughs> Trust me, I almost, I wanted to just kind of crawl under my desk after reading this, because I complain if I have to do Sunday school and preach a Sunday sermon. I think my load is big. This guy is preaching, maybe that's because he wasn't writing notes for, anyway, I won't try to make an excuse for Calvin, but, but the guy is a machine. Even on his deathbed, 
He continued to work on unfinished material. It's like Calvin. You're, you're on your deathbed. Take a break. Watch a little television. Just follow along with the analogy. I know that's historically anachronistic, but take a break, right? What do you have at every hospital and every convalescent home room? A television. And so people are moments away, days away from entering into eternity. And what is the world telling them to do? Focus on entertainment. Calvin would have nothing of that. Calvin, to his last sigh, this is what he says, bear with me, Calvin now, bear with me that God finds me watching and waiting, busy at his work until my last sigh. And that was given to his friends who were telling Calvin, take it easy. (laughs) And Calvin is saying, just bear with me, tolerate, put up with, I know it's hard to put up with this, but just please know that I'm doing this because I want to be found by my master busy for him when he comes for me. It's just amazing. At the end of his life, April 25th, 1564, preparation for his will, Calvin dictates his will, and he looks over the expanse of his labors, and he counted himself, like I said, as nothing, nothing but a poor creature and a servant of God. I tell you, when you read Calvin, you, 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 just, you come away with two things. Number one, the bigness of God. That for Calvin, God's big, God's, Calvin's God is so immense, so big. And you come away understanding something of your own finiteness. That you are infinitely small in the presence of an infinitely great God. And that's the way that Calvin saw himself. In the name of God, I, John Calvin, servant of the word of God in the church of Geneva, weakened by many illnesses that God has had to show, excuse me, that God, that he has shown not only his mercy to me, his poor creature, and he has suffered me a partaker of his grace to serve him through my work. I confess to live and die in this faith which he has given me inasmuch as I have no other hope or refuge than his predestination upon which my entire salvation is grounded. I embrace the grace which he has offered me in our Lord Jesus Christ and accept the merits of his suffering and dying that through them all my sins are buried. And I humbly beg him, wash me, cleanse me with the blood of our great Redeemer. And it was as it was shed for all poor sinners, so that I, when I shall appear before his face, that I may bear his likeness. You know what was so encouraging about that? When I I read over that and I, I looked at that, here is John Calvin, a man that knows so much theology, has done so much, and has been walking with Christ for so long, and yet here he is on his deathbed dictating his will and saying, Christ, Wash me, saying, Christ, cleanse me with your blood. Folks, we never stop praying that. It's always right to preach the gospel to yourself, even if it's on your dying day. Preach the gospel to yourself as Calvin did. Now, 
He's asking for the blood of the Redeemer. This brings us to Christ. Transition out of his life, out of his thought, now to Christology, Calvin and Christology. So kick it in gear and just, you know, seatbelt yourself in. You're in for another round of this. I want to study Calvin's emphasis on Christology as he did by pointing out that for Calvin, Jesus was the aim of all our scripturizing. Scripture, Christ was the aim of all our sermonizing. It was Christ. Listen to what Calvin says. Calvin says, we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Now, you know, okay, in this church that I've been on a Christ-centered kick for many years. And actually, in the last two years of the existence of this church, or a little over that, you've known about two years of that kick. There's been a lot longer where I've been wrestling through and reading through and studying through a lot of these issues that have now, for me, began to crystallize a little bit. And it is exactly what Calvin is saying here, that when we read the scriptures, we need to do it with the express design of finding Christ in them. Now, before we fly off to allegory, Calvin was not an allegorizer. Matter of fact, Calvin laid the very bedrock of the historical grammatical interpretation. He was a staunch advocate for the original meaning, the authorial intent of the book. I mean, he was staunch on that level. However, he knew that if we came short of Christ, we did not harness the Bible in its total emphasis, in its total package. We weren't looking at the Bible as a whole. He says, whoever will turn aside from making this their object, though he weary himself throughout his whole life in learning, he will never attain to the knowledge of the truth. For what wisdom can we have without the wisdom of God? Isn't that amazing? So for Calvin, he saw that attaining to the wisdom of God, that that was connected to us finding Christ in all of Scripture and to make that our express Design, Calvin rejected adamantly a superficial, cursory glance of the subject of Christ in the Old Testament. He saw and he warns that we should approach Scripture searching for Christ superficially, and we, if we did that, we would come away without the Scriptures profiting us as they ought to. The New Testament makes it very clear that all of Scripture is Christ-centered and designed to point us, brethren, to the, to the climax and to the revelation of Christ. And, and, and I am very encouraged by the fact that Christ-centeredness is on the rise. Christotelism, as some people have called it, Christocentricity. Books are being written everywhere now. I mean, just look to the latest ESV study Bible, the Gospel Transformation Study Bible by the ESV. It is written in such a way as to emphasize the person and work of Christ from all of Scripture. And we are 500 years before Christ-centeredness became trendy, if I can use that word, Calvin saw that the primary goal of Scripture was to glorify and magnify the person of Jesus Christ. For Calvin, the Old Testament authors are our guides. 
They reveal to us the majesty of Christ before the Gospels come. He says, In order that Christ may be made known to us through the gospel, it is necessary that Moses and the prophets should go before us as guides that will show us the way. He saw Christ who was present in shadows and types and he loved to speak of the figures of Christ. He saw Christ as the head that bound all of the Old Testament covenants together and thus bound the whole Bible together in perfect unity and perfect harmony. When he looked at Luke 24, one of our favorite passages for the Emmaus Road, where Jesus there talks about the fact that he is to be found in all the parts of Scripture, he references Hebrews, and he says Hebrews and Luke, they work together, basically showing us Christ in all of Scripture and that the purpose of all things is Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, God commanded that the tabernacle and the ceremonies of the law should be adjusted to a heavenly pattern. It follows that the sacrifices and the other parts of the service of the temple, if the reality of them is to be found nowhere else, would be an idle and useless sport. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying if the images, if the imagery that we get from the temple, the sacrifices, the labor, the offering, the the altar, the blood, all of these things, if they do not point away from themselves to something else, they would be idle and useless sport. This very argument is copiously illustrated by the apostle in Hebrews, he says. For assuming this principle, that the visible ceremonies of the law are shadows of spiritual things, he shows that in the whole of the legal priesthood, in the sacrifices, and in the form of the sanctuary itself, we ought to seek Christ. Oh, I love it. I love it because... It gives us the opportunity now to go to Leviticus, to go to Deuteronomy, to go to Exodus, to go to Numbers, and to, and to not skip over the parts that we think are boring, but to ask the Christ-centered questions, what do the curtains on the tabernacle have to do with Christ? I mean, are we just really supposed to know about the curtains? Why were the priests in Leviticus waving palm branches in the air? Is God just prescribing idle sport to his people? No, my dear friends. All of those things have Christ-centered significance, Christ-centered shadows, the reality of which is found directly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It really is magnificent. He, Calvin's, Calvin understood law, prophets, psalms, all of that pointing us where? To what he calls striking portraits of Jesus. Listen what he says. The prophets themselves, they drew far more striking portraits of the mediator, though they had derived their earliest acquaintance with him from Moses. For no other office was assigned to them than to renew the remembrance of the covenant, to point out more clearly the spiritual worship of God, to found on the mediator the hope of salvation, and to show more clearly the method of reconciliation. In other words, for Calvin, go to the law, go to the prophets, go to the Psalms. If you want to find the hope of your salvation, if you want to see more clearly how God reconciles sinners, amazing, 
even as Calvin differed from Luther. For example, on the third use of the law, Luther had a different view of the law. He did not believe in the third use of the law. He ultimately saw that the law, Calvin that is, saw that the law is found in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. He said if you take Christ out, he said that would, that would make the law without delight and without sweetness. It's the way he describes it. For Calvin, every part of the law should lead us to our need of Christ, the redemption of Christ, the fullness of Christ, and the centrality of Christ. As a matter of fact, even on the application of the controversial fourth commandment, the Sabbath, for Calvin, the Sabbath without Christ, to quote him, was pure superstition. The Sabbath was full of ceremonial importance with Christ as its fulfillment. This is Calvin. But there is no doubt that by the Lord Christ's coming, the ceremonial part of this commandment was abolished, for he himself is the truth with whose presence all figures vanish. He is the body at whose appearance the shadows are left behind. He is, I say, the true fulfillment of the Sabbath. Christians ought therefore to shun completely the superstitious observance of days. For Calvin, Jesus was the end of the law, but that did not mean lawlessness, antinomianism. Or it, but, but instead, he was the goal of the law. He was the purpose of the law. He was the reason why the law was given. The law was designed in the shape of a cross. Calvin did not hesitate to agree with Peter in that the Old Testament prophets were ruled, as he says, by the Spirit of Christ, and that it was Christ through the Spirit that was actually dictating to the prophets about, well, Christ. Listen to what Calvin says. At the same time, the high praise, excuse me, a high praise is given to the prophet's doctrine, for it was the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The preachers and the ministers were men, but he was the teacher. Nor does he declare without reason that the Spirit of Christ then ruled. He makes the Spirit sent from heaven to preside over the teachers of the gospel, for he shows that the gospel comes from God and that the ancient prophecies were dictated by Christ. That's amazing. Seeing in that phrase, the Spirit of Christ was in them, what Calvin would argue is, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies is Jesus Christ dictating to these prophets what to write about Christ. It's just amazing. It's amazing. For Calvin then, it was that Christ was in the Old Testament prophesying about himself. Sidney Gradanus pointed this out about Calvin. He says, Calvin will move beyond literal historical interpretation to Christocentric interpretation. Again, not leaving it behind, but saying he uses that and moves beyond that to Christocentric interpretation. The necessity of understanding a passage in its context as of, of the whole Bible, 
Not just the context of the passage of the book of the chapter, but understanding any given passage in its canonical context, meaning the whole Bible has to be taken into account. And in that way, Calvin gets to Christ from all of Scripture. Calvin saw that the whole Bible was a treasure trove of finding and benefiting from Christ. Another quote, and hang in there because we're almost done. This is what we should, in short, seek from the whole Bible, Calvin. Truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. And here we can safely say that Calvin is lockstep with Paul. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, please, beginning in verse 1. I quote Paul in context because I want, us, I want you to see the immense practicality of Christ-centeredness, the immense practicality of this. As Paul is writing there to encourage, he's writing to churches, he's writing to a simple local church, Colossae, and he says this, Colossians 2.1, remember, for Calvin, the Bible is a treasure trove of finding and benefiting from Christ. And Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Lady Osea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth, watch this folks, that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. And actually, Paul is even more explicit than that because that, uh, those words, that is, Christ himself, well, the words that is and the word himself are not in the Bible. They're not in the original Greek. It would literally read, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. And that's how Paul would end that phrase. And then he goes on. In him or in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of divine revelation, dear friends, is hidden in Christ. He is at the bottom of the treasure. He is at the top of the treasure. He is the treasure. He is where all wisdom and knowledge is to be found. Finally, Calvin saw Scripture as unfolding. And this is the point that I want to emphasize as we close. For Calvin, he saw that the Bible was progressing, unfolding. More and more of Jesus is being revealed. Let me read to you what he says here. The Lord held us to this orderly plan in administrating the covenant of his mercy. As the day of full revelation approached, with the passing of time, the more he increased each day the brightness of its manifestation. It's going to get brighter. He says, accordingly, at the beginning, when the first promise of salvation was given to Adam, here he's referencing Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion. And he says, it glowed like a feeble spark. Then, as it was added to, the light grew in fullness, breaking forth increasingly and shedding its radiance more widely. At last, when all the clouds were dispersed, Christ, the Son of Righteousness, Malachi 4, 
fully illuminated the whole world. This is me, folks, just spending a little bit of time excavating, drilling down into Calvin's Christology. Wish that I could have done a better job for you because it is worthy of that type of investigation because for Calvin, he would say, we must be reading Scripture like a day that is getting brighter and brighter and brighter until the full sun rises up, until the dawn breaks and you see the sun of God's righteousness dawn in your heart. That is the way that he saw Scripture, and that is the way that we ought to see it as well. Let's pray.